From the audio archives of the Bible Study Hour, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the classic teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that one year a census was taken of the number of lambs slain for Passover and that the figure was 256,500. With numbers this large, lambs must literally have been driven up to Jerusalem throughout the entire day. Consequently, whenever Jesus entered the city, he must have done so surrounded by lambs, himself being the greatest of lambs. Four days later, at the very time the lambs were killed, Jesus himself was killed, thereby becoming the ultimate Passover lamb on the basis of whose shed blood the angel of spiritual death passes over all who place their trust in him. Author, theologian, and pastor, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce began teaching on the Bible Study Hour in 1969. He went to be with his Lord in 2000, yet his biblical insights and in-depth teaching continue to encourage, equip, and edify believers. The goal of the Bible Study Hour is to prepare Christians to think and act biblically. On this edition of the Bible Study Hour, Dr. Boyce presents the message entitled, The King is Coming. Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem marks the most important week in human history. Christian tradition commemorates the crucifixion of Jesus on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. But is the traditional view correct? What do the scriptures really say about the day of Christ's crucifixion? And what do the events of this week mean for us today? The scripture text for this edition of the Bible Study Hour is John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Here now is Dr. James Montgomery Boyce with the message entitled, The King is Coming. Do you like to preserve traditions or would you rather get rid of them? Well, according to tradition, Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem as a king on Palm Sunday and was crucified on the following Friday. I'd like to challenge both of these traditions with the help of my Bible today on the Bible Study Hour. With the exception of the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, no incident from Christ's life is better known than his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what has come to be known as Palm Sunday. And yet, few incidents from his life are more widely misunderstood. For whatever reason, whether the love of mere spectacle, the requirements of church liturgies, or just the misreading of the gospel accounts, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday has been regarded by many as a last public offer of himself as king to the people of Jerusalem. Up to this point, he had avoided allowing himself to be thought of as a king, so the argument goes. But now, with the hostility of the leaders of the people building up against him, and with the moment of his destiny rapidly closing in, Jesus makes one last attempt to gain a following. It's only when the Hosannas turn to demands for his crucifixion that Jesus abandons this plan and goes to Calvary. Unfortunately for this view, the Gospels tell us that Jesus had already offered himself to Israel as king once, early in his ministry, and had been rejected. We find that in Matthew chapter 4, the 17th verse, and in other places. Now, he entered Jerusalem with an entirely different purpose. 
That raises the question, of course, why did Jesus enter Jerusalem as he did on Palm Sunday then? There are several answers to this question. First, he came to die. Here, Mark's account is most explicit, for he tells us that Jesus explained this to his disciples just two days earlier, that is, on the Friday preceding the Passover at which he was killed. Mark writes, And they were on the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them. And they were amazed, and as they followed they were afraid. And he took again the twelve, and began to tell them what things should happen to him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests, and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Against this background, it appears fairly certain that Jesus entered Jerusalem as he did, publicly, not to win over the people, the time for that had long passed, but rather to goad the Pharisees and chief priests into action and thus precipitate the events that he knew awaited him. It's in accord with this view that we find Jesus taking the initiative at every point. It was not the multitude that prepared the triumphal entry. Rather, it was Jesus. Jesus dispatched two of his disciples to Bethpage to get the colt. Jesus mounted it. Therefore, it was also he who triggered this tumultuous reception. The second reason why Jesus entered Jerusalem as he did was that he might fulfill Scripture. To us, this may seem like an inverted way of doing things. We think that Jesus, as God, should be bound by nothing. But Jesus did consider himself bound by Scripture. And as an infallible expression of the will of the Father, he submitted to it. As also Scripture directed many other of his actions throughout his ministry. Thus, both Matthew and John refer to the prophecy of Zechariah, in which it was written, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee! He is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. John tells us that the disciples did not understand this at the time, but that they came to understand it later. Here, then, are two reasons why Jesus entered Jerusalem as he did on Palm Sunday. First, to die for his people, and secondly, to fulfill Scripture. When this is said, however, I must admit that to my mind, the most important and interesting reason why Jesus did as he did when he did it is neither of these, but rather a different one entirely. To my way of thinking, the most important reason why Jesus entered Jerusalem, particularly when he did, was to show himself to be our Passover. That is, he wanted to exhibit himself as our Passover lamb, who was to take away the sins of the world. Now, this is a major point, of course, and the making of this point depends upon the dating of the events of the Passover week at which Jesus was killed. So, it's necessary to deviate from our main theme in order to deal with the problems of that dating. In the traditional view of this week, Jesus was crucified on a Friday, which we call Good Friday, and was raised from the dead early on Easter Sunday morning. 
In terms of the Jewish calendar, this means that the Passover Sabbath was Saturday, so Saturday must have been the 15th of the month of Nisan. In this reconstruction, Jesus therefore entered Jerusalem on Sunday, the 9th of Nisan, after a Sabbath rest in Bethany, was crucified on the 14th, and was raised from the dead on the 16th. The strength of this traditional view results from two factors. First, the length of the tradition, going back to some early day in the history of the church, and second, the apparent placing of the crucifixion of Jesus on the day immediately before the regular Saturday Sabbath by all four of the gospel writers. But in spite of these factors, which are, however, not as obvious as they appear when you investigate them more carefully, the traditional view presents us with several major difficulties. Most people who know anything at all about the Bible are aware of the first difficulty. It's the difficulty of squaring a Friday crucifixion with Christ's prophecy that the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's true that, according to Jewish idiom, the phrase three days does not necessarily mean a period of 72 hours. It can mean merely one whole day plus parts of two others. But while this observation helps us in dealing with texts that actually say three days, it hardly helps us in dealing with this very important prophecy from Matthew. For here the phrase is not three days, but rather three days and three nights. It's possible that parts of one day and one night are involved, rather than three full days and three full nights. Nevertheless, three periods of light and three periods of darkness must at least be accounted for. And this, regardless of anything else, is fatal to a Friday crucifixion theory. As one writer says, Add to this indictment of Friday the statement of the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, spoken on the afternoon of Sunday, Today is the third day since these things were done, and the case looks black indeed against Friday, because Sunday is not the third day since Friday. The second difficulty with the Friday dating is one known to anyone who has attempted to sort out the events of the final Passover week and assign them days. On an average, about one-third of the Gospels is taken up with the events of the last week of Christ's life. And we should rightly infer from this that the events of this week, being of great importance, are given to us fairly completely and in detail. Indeed, from the arrival of Jesus in Bethany six days before the Passover until the resurrection, every moment seems to be accounted for. Yet, when the events of these days are pieced together into one connected whole, one whole day and possibly two is lacking. Now, one of the silent days can be explained as the preceding Sabbath, a day in which Jesus rested in Bethany and received those who came to see both himself and Lazarus. But what of the other day? Can it really be that in a week as full as this one was, one whole day is unaccounted for? It should be noticed that the difficulty of accounting for this day has led no less careful a scholar than Frederick Godet to move the events of Palm Sunday forward to Monday thereby compressing six days of activity into five. However, we cannot help also noticing that the same effect can be achieved by moving the crucifixion backward a day to Thursday rather than by moving Palm Sunday forward. One more difficulty must be seen before we attempt a solution. It's a difficulty of more recent development. 
The dating of historical events is a very complicated and often uncertain matter involving the days and times of solar and lunar eclipses and of new moons. But in recent years, thanks to the use of highly sophisticated computers, much that was formerly uncertain is known. New and Full Moons by Hermann Goldstein was published, from which it's possible to calculate the days of the week upon which the Jewish Passover had to fall in any given year during Christ's lifetime or thereafter. If this would establish a Saturday Passover— and therefore a Friday crucifixion for any year near the time at which Jesus must have been crucified, it would be excellent support for the traditional theory. But in fact, it does not. Instead, the day before Passover falls on a Friday only in the year A.D. 26, which is too early, and in the year A.D. 33, which most scholars agree to be too late. Well, what are we to do with these problems, then? Is there a solution? I believe that there is, and that it is quite obviously the solution once we get over the idea that the crucifixion must have been on a Friday, as tradition says. The solution is simply that two Sabbaths were involved in this last week of Christ's earthly ministry. One was the regular weekly Sabbath, which always fell on a Saturday. The second was an extra Passover Sabbath, which in this particular week must have come on a Friday. I should point out, in case it's not entirely self-evident, that the Passover Sabbath always came on the 15th of the month of Nisan, and would therefore naturally fall on different days of the week in different years. It was, however, always observed as a Sabbath, and would be called a Sabbath. In this reconstruction... Jesus would have been crucified on Thursday and would have been raised from the dead sometime before dawn on Sunday morning. Now, what does this arrangement do to the problems we've already encountered as a result of the traditional dating? In a word, it eliminates each one. First, it clearly allows for the required three days and three nights in the tomb in line with Christ's prophecy. Jesus had spoken of a period beginning with daylight and comprising the whole of three days and nights with the possible qualification that the opening period of day and the closing period of night need not necessarily be a full twelve hours. This is provided for as follows. Jesus died on Thursday afternoon about three o'clock. Hence, the hours from 3 p.m. until dusk qualify as the first day. This period is followed by Thursday night, Friday, Friday night, Saturday, and Saturday night. That is a total of three days and three nights in that precise order. Not three nights and three days, but three days and three nights. In this scheme of things, Jesus could have risen from the dead at any point after dark on Saturday evening. At any rate, we know that he had been raised before the women got to the tomb at dawn on Sunday morning. It's worth adding here that several minor points tend to reinforce this conclusion. For one thing, when the soldiers invented their excuse as to why they were unable to guard the tomb successfully, they ended up saying, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. This would be a natural excuse if the resurrection and the subsequent opening of the tomb by the angels took place during the night. For another thing, Matthew's account of the events of the resurrection morning begins in the end of the Sabbaths 
plural, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. The plural, Sabbaths, has been a puzzle to many commentators and translators, who usually change it to the singular, Sabbath. But the plural is completely explained if there were actually two Sabbaths, the Friday Passover Sabbath and the Saturday Sabbath, back to back. The second area of difficulty for the traditional view is the absence of one whole day of activities during the final week. But this, too, is overcome if the crucifixion is seen to have been on Thursday. In this scheduling of events, we have the following. On Friday, the Friday preceding the Passover, Jesus leaves Jericho at the start of his final trip to Jerusalem. He tells the disciples what will happen that week. In the evening, he arrives at Bethany and spends the night there. A dinner is prepared in his honor, at which Mary anoints his feet with ointment. On Saturday, which was the Jewish Sabbath, Jesus does not travel, but rather remains in Bethany with his disciples and Lazarus. Many come to see Jesus and the man he had raised from the dead. On Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey after having first made arrangements to secure the animal. He goes to the temple and looks about, but by this time it's late, and so he returns to Bethany, having done nothing that the gospel writers record. On Monday, he returns to Jerusalem again. On the way, he curses the fig tree as a symbol of the barrenness of Israel and as a prophecy of what was coming to the nation. In Jerusalem, on this day, he cleanses the temple for the final time and then returns again to Bethany, where indeed he spends each night of this week save the last. On Tuesday, Jesus goes back to Jerusalem and the disciples find the fig tree withered and receive Christ's explanation. In the city, the disciples comment on the magnificence of the temple and are told that the day is coming when it will be torn down. On the way home, Jesus pauses on the Mount of Olives to give what has come to be called the Olivet Discourse concerning things to come. Prophecy seems to be the theme of this day from beginning to end. On Wednesday, Jesus sends the disciples to make preparation for the Passover, which is, however, eaten that evening without the Passover lamb. Jesus is arrested that same night as he deliberately tarries in the Garden of Gethsemane on what would have been his normal trip back to Bethany. On Thursday, Jesus is tried and eventually crucified. The trial begins on what we would call Wednesday night, but which is actually the early hours of Thursday by Jewish reckoning, and it's completed in the morning. Darkness covers the land from noon to 3 p.m. Jesus dies and is buried that evening by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. The women observe where Jesus is buried and buy spices, but as it's now the start of the Jewish Passover, that is, the Friday Passover Sabbath, which began at dusk on Thursday evening, they are unable to attempt to anoint the body until Sunday morning. On Friday and Saturday, the body of Jesus remains in the tomb. The women and disciples observe the two Sabbaths. Jesus rises from the dead sometime between the coming of darkness on Saturday evening and the coming of dawn on Sunday morning. In this way, then, as you can see, each day of the last week is fully accounted for. The final difficulty with the traditional view is also easily answered in accord with the Thursday Passover theory. 
We recall that the day before Passover, the 14th of Nisan, did not fall on a Friday between the years A.D. 26 and A.D. 33. But how about Thursday? Well, the answer to that is that the 14th of Nisan fell on a Thursday once during those years, and that this one time perfectly fits the situation. The 14th of Nisan fell on a Thursday in the year A.D. 30, the most probable year of the crucifixion, even by other measurements. Therefore, to put this all in our terminology, the crucifixion of Jesus may be dated today with some certainty as having occurred on April 6th, the year A.D. 30. But now, what does this mean for the question with which we began? Namely, why did Jesus enter Jerusalem as he did on Palm Sunday? Well, if the crucifixion, which we know to have been on the 14th of Nisan, occurred on a Thursday, as I've just argued, then, counting backward, we find that Palm Sunday was the 10th of Nisan, not the 9th of Nisan, which it would have been on the traditional theory. And this is important, because it was on the 10th of Nisan that the thousands of lambs that were to be sacrificed for the Passover were taken up to Jerusalem and kept for the three days stipulated by the law of Moses in the homes of those who were to eat them. Thus, it was as these lambs were taken up to Jerusalem that Jesus entered the city openly. Not all are aware how many lambs were involved, so it's necessary to note that there was a great number. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that one year a census was taken of the number of lambs slain for Passover and that the figure was 256,500. In other words, with numbers this large, lambs must literally have been driven up to Jerusalem throughout the entire day. Consequently, whenever Jesus entered the city, he must have done so surrounded by lambs, himself being the greatest of lambs. Four days later, at the very time the lambs were killed, Jesus himself was killed, thereby becoming the ultimate Passover lamb on the basis of whose shed blood the angel of spiritual death passes over all who place their trust in him. So we need to ask, is Jesus your Passover? Have you received him as your Savior? If not, remember that although he did not come as a conquering king on this first occasion, nevertheless the time is coming when he will appear as king to execute judgments. On that occasion it will not be upon a lowly donkey as the king of peace, but as Revelation 19.11 tells us, it will be on the white charger of war. In that day there will be no opportunity to turn to him. The chance to believe will be lost. On the other hand, there is time now. Today is the day of God's grace. Trust him and learn to say with Isaiah, he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him, and with his stripes I am healed. Truly, all we like sheep have gone astray. But in accordance with his grace, the Lord hath laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. I 
know that many Christians have their holy days and their holy seasons and feel that by keeping them they'll be especially favored by God. It's certainly all right to observe holidays, but the motivation that I've just given is wrong. Nobody is saved or accredited by God or anything like that by keeping a special day. At the same time, we must acknowledge that the Old Testament was filled with special days, not for salvation, of course, but to remember certain things, and that was right. It's interesting that the New Testament plays down any emphasis on the keeping of days. What the Bible says is that we must never do any right as a way of salvation. That's wrong. And when we do that, it's not authentic Christianity. But on the other hand, it says that if you want to keep special days for special reasons, certainly many Christians keep Easter and Christmas among them, then this may be a help in your spiritual life. Keep them in that case. But if you don't keep them, don't feel that you're obligated to keep them. Let me give just a verse or two that indicates this in the words of the New Testament writers. In Romans 14, for instance, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, One man esteems one day above another, and another man esteems them all alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Or, again in Colossians, the uh, second chapter, verse 16, Let no man judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holiday, and he goes on, lists a few other things, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. In other words, his point is, let's remember that Christ is the center of it all and use these things to the degree that they're helpful in our spiritual growth. And now, our Father, we thank you for these truths, and we ask you to use them in each heart. If there are those listening who have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, never believed on him as the Passover lamb, we ask that they might have no peace until they rest in him who is the source of all peace. And upon your own, may a new sense of the wonder of that giving love that took Christ to Calvary be theirs. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, your love, and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit abide on them. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus entered Jerusalem to die for his people to fulfill Scripture, and to reveal Himself as our Passover Lamb. Have you looked to the cross of Christ and found your salvation there? If you would like an audio copy of this edition of the Bible Study Hour, call us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888 and request the message entitled, The King is Coming, or simply ask for message number 1329. You may also write to us at the Bible Study Hour, at Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. This message and additional teachings by Dr. Boyce are accessible by visiting us online at www.alliancenet.org. And when you visit our website, or when you call or write, be sure to investigate and inquire about the many resources available from the Bible Study Hour and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, including daily devotionals, information on upcoming conferences, and in-depth written and audio Bible studies, including a vast number of studies by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Again, our contact information, write The Bible Study Hour, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Call 1-800-488-1888. 
visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Your prayers, encouraging letters, and financial gifts all enable the Bible Study Hour to continue its outreach ministry. Once more, today's edition of the Bible Study Hour is entitled, The King is Coming, message number 1329. Thanks for utilizing the Bible Study Hour to be a part of your Christian growth. Join us again as the teaching of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce prepares us to think and act biblically.